Hi, Steve. Uh, hi, Bob. How are you doing? Okay. And you? I'm doing all right. I don't have quite the beautiful uh, scenic backdrop that you do, but uh, you know, somebody's somebody's got to do the work in this country, Steve. We can't we can't all be uh, you know wherever that is. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, this is the Berkeley Hills. Okay. I'm on sabbatical. And I gather it is the real Berkeley Hills where you really are, even if it is technically a photograph of them. Is that right? It is a photograph okay. out, out of the uh, uh, from the deck of the house that I am renting. Okay, okay. Then I am uh, just as impressed as I would be if that were an actual window. Uh, so uh, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is the Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You're Steve Pinker. Uh, probably known to most people who are listening or watching, professor of psychology at Harvard, author of many books, um, and a uh, number of them New York Times bestsellers. You got a new book out that we're going to talk about. It's called Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. Um, I've been listening to it, really enjoying it, really valuable book. Um, I, I have I have a few criticisms I'll get to, but I want to reassure you that they're uh, criticisms of a certain kind. You know, you know when you when somebody reviews your book and you're, you you think like they're not reviewing the book I set out to write. They're telling me what kind of book they would have written if they had written a book on the general subject. That happens. It does happen, and I, I can well, and I can tell that you're an author. It's about. It's probably happened to you. It's happened to all of us, and it's about yeah. to happen to you, Steve. But uh, <laughs> but it won't be a it won't be a comment on the book, strictly speaking. It's just uh, uh, something I want to add to the conversation. We'll get to that eventually. I mean, I will say uh, it is relevant. Uh, what I'll have to say is relevant to your professed uh, mission. You you put the the book is about reasoning how to do it. Uh, but you you set it in the context of the real messy world where right now, famously, there are a lot of people who believe crazy things. There are a lot of political polarization, other forms of groupism that lead people to believe untrue things. And sometimes those untrue things in turn reinforce the polarization or the tribal conflict or whatever. Uh, so so the book, you know, you, you have things to say about that. And, and it's kind of in that in that vein that I'll uh, have uh, tell you what book, uh, how, what chapters I would have added. Um, but let's start uh, at, at, at the beginning. So um, first of all, it seems to me like this is uh, maybe a unique resource. Maybe you're not the most unbiased person to ask, but I'm wondering um, even if you look at textbooks, and of course, this is this is written with more panache than the average textbook, but is there a, a, a kind of standard textbook that covers all this? I mean, you you get into like formal logic, probability, you know, statistical inference, uh, causal inference broadly, how to how to judge the credibility of hypotheses, game theory, and so on. There's a lot of things you're putting in under the rubric of rationality, uh, and it sounds like this this may be evolved from a course you taught. I don't know, but uh, is there? Is this a little different than any existing? Again, it's not a textbook, and it doesn't read like one. But is it different in 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 scope from the textbooks that are out there? It is. There are books on critical thinking. There are books <clears throat> on uh, how to think probabilistically. There, I didn't know of a book that combined logic, critical thinking, in the sense of avoiding some of the classic fallacies like the like straw manning, moving the goalposts, uh, the argument from authority. 
uh, together with statistical reasoning and together with game theory, which is, a, uh, I think, an important tool for reasoning. I'm sure you agree. You wrote a whole, whole book that uh, relied on a game theoretic concept. Uh, and signal detection theory, another word for statistical decision theory. I didn't know of a, um, a single pair of covers that embraced all of those tools of reasoning. And indeed, it did, it did uh, emerge from a course uh, that I offered in part of the general education curriculum at Harvard for the same reason. I just think these are tools that every thoughtful, literate, educated person should know. And I, I didn't know of a course or a book that, uh, that had them all. Yeah, I'm not aware of one. Um, so... Uh... Why don't you start out by telling us the difference between logic and reason? Yeah, logic is one of the tools of reason, and um, it is an example of a normative model by which uh, I mean a model of how one ought to think, at least in a particular domain. That leads to the question, uh, uh, to what extent do humans um, think according to the normative model? But logic is a tool for the purpose of deducing uh, implications from propositions. So if you are if you already believe something, what else are you entitled to believe? What else will be true? Now, it's not the same as reasoning because uh, the, for the way logic works is it's just a set of rules for kind of manipulating tokens. If you see an if and a then, uh, if P, then Q, and you see a P, then you're allowed to write Q. And you don't really have to know what the P and Q mean. Uh, indeed, it's better if you don't know what they mean. And a common class of logical fallacies is that people import their knowledge of what those propositions do mean, and they bring to bear everything they know about P and throw it into the deduction. That, in a way, is a, a reasonable thing to do. It's a rational thing to do, but it's not what you do in logic. It's not what that tool entitles you to do. To just take an example, uh, the syllogism uh, all things made from plant products are healthy. Tobacco is made from plant products. Therefore, tobacco is healthy. Is that a sound inference? And most people say, no, what are you talking about? Tobacco causes cancer and emphysema. And, but the correct answer, if you're a logic student, is, well, yes, it is a sound inference. It does follow from the premises. If the premises are true, then the uh, conclusion is true. We didn't ask you whether the premises are true. We're just asking you for that rule of inference. Now, uh, if that applies... People have a lot of trouble doing that, segregating their uh, world knowledge. And when they do that, they're not being irrational, but they are being, strictly speaking, illogical. Okay. Now, you seem to think of logic as something, well, that's kind of built into the fabric of, you, of the universe or something that's kind of like out there, almost in a platonic, in the way of a platonic ideal or something. I mean, does this capture some of your, your thought? In, in a way, yes. Although, you know, granted that that's something of an obscure notion, uh, as and as part of the general philosophy of math called mathematical realism, sometimes mathematical Platonism, that mathematicians discover things; they don't invent them. And there's been a, a, more than a century of debate among mathematicians and philosophers of, of mathematics as to whether that's a coherent concept. Um, my uh, my other half, Rebecca Goldstein, who knows a lot of philosophers of, math, of uh, mathematics and mathematicians, uh, tells me that according to a poll, a majority of mathematicians themselves are realists. That is, they don't, they, they don't think that they're just playing with symbols, playing games. They really think that there is some ap aspect of reality that they are discovering. And it feels mm -hmm. like discovery when you are a mathematician. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, I mean, logic is part of the... Uh 
in a way, part of the environment that humans are adapted to by evolution, right? I mean, it, 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 it's something that's reflected in the evolution of the human mind. And, and that's, uh, I guess, good news. What keeps us from being, um, well, among the things that keep us from being really excellent logicians, pure logicians by nature is the fact that we evolved, for one thing, in specific contexts and uh, to perform specific tasks that might involve logic. Uh, but there's no reason that evolution would have made us uh, great abstract logicians. Um, and I mean, more broadly, you know, logic, I guess you could say, was harnessed by natural selection to the ends of getting genes replicated, right, in a sense. And so all of that, uh, well, keeps us uh, from being uh, perfect logicians. There are cases, and I think an interesting one you point to is, is the, 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 uh, the, is it Wasson selection task? Uh, Wason. Wason. Yes. So that's a, that seems to be a very interesting example where it, it shows that we're not good pure logicians, but if you set the problem in a particular context, it suggests that we actually are designed to harness that kind of logic in a, in, in a particular kind of setting, maybe. Do you want to talk about yeah, that. this is a, a classic test of logical reasoning. It, uh, it was first demonstrated in the 1960s by Peter Wason. Uh, and it's de deceptively simple. You've got four cards. Every card has a number on one side, a letter on, an up on the other side. The um, challenge now is to test whether the following rule applies to these four cards. Now, the rule is if there's a D on one side, there's a three on the other. And remember, there's always a letter on one side, a number on, on the other. So the rule is if D, then three. And uh, sitting on the table in front of you, there is a D card, there's a three card, there's an F card, there's a seven card. The challenge is what's the fewest number of cards you have to turn over to test whether the rule is um, is enforced, is obeyed by those cards. And the classic result, highly replicable, is that replicable is that people pick the D uh, or the D and the three. Okay, remember the rule is if D then three. The correct logical answer is the D and the seven. And it's the kind of thing where you know, no one gets the answer right or very few people, but as soon as explained to them, they slap their forehead, they say, yes, of course, and here's the explanation. Uh, you do have to turn over the D, absolutely. You don't have to turn over the three because the rule says if D, then three, not if three, then D. The idea that you have to look at the three is the classic fallacy of affirming the consequent. That is, if it's you know, P implies Q, uh, you don't have to, uh, it, it is not true that Q implies P. That is a, a fallacy. Um, the F, everyone knows you don't have to turn that over, but you really do have to turn over the seven. How come? Well, if you did turn it over and you saw a D on the other side, then it would falsify the rule if D then three. Okay, so it's uh, now a, a classic explanation, not completely correct, but um, it, it'll do is that it's an example of confirmation bias. We seek out information that confirms our beliefs. We um, aren't motivated to try to falsify them. But the twist, and this is what I, where, where I think you're, you're going, and it, it uh, meshes with the interest that, that uh, both of us have in evolutionary psychology, is that if the content is not abstract Ds and threes, but something a little more um, uh, socially relevant, like uh, are you following a social rule, uh, then everything changes. So, for example, let's say that the, there's a law in your state that says if you are consuming alcohol, you must be over 21. And you're a bouncer in a bar, and there are people at various tables 
One of them is um, <clears throat> clearly is drinking beer. The uh, another one is um, drinking Coke. There's one that is obvious. He's over 21. There's ob- another one that he's ob- that is obvious that he's under 21. Now, do you uh, card the guy who's drinking beer? Do you card the guy who's drinking Coke? Do you look inside the cup of the 60-year-old? Do you look inside the cup of the 15-year-old? Well, now everyone gets it right. Well, of course, you look inside the cup of the 15-year-old to see if he's uh, if it's beer in there, and you uh, card the guy drinking beer to make sure he's over, over 21. Now, this is logically identical to the for card task, but you put in the right kind of content. It can't just be any old content. In this case, it's a, a, rule, a social rule, a social contract. And then we are logicians, I think for the reason that you explained, namely logic is part of the fabric of reality and you can't really think without it. The difference is that we, and this is a kind of an answer to the question, are humans rational, are humans logical? We can be, but our knowledge of, of logic in this case is baked together with our subject matter knowledge, in this case of social obligations and rules. Uh, what we don't have is an all-purpose logical rule uh, like the law of contraposition. Uh, P, if uh, P implies Q is true, then not P implies not, not Q implies not P is true, mm-hmm. where anything can go into the P's and Q's. That's a very valuable thing to have. And that's one of the reasons why we go to school to learn these formulae that can apply to anything, even if we are totally unfamiliar with the subject matter. So it's incredibly powerful if you master it, but that's not what we're, we're uh, born with, not what comes naturally. And and as, as you note in the book, I mean, the, the example you give in the book suggests that you can actually come up with an example that is physically exactly like the card example you started with. Uh, but if it, if it is a case where you're trying to find somebody breaking the rules, people are good at it. The example in the, in, in the book is, you know, you're working at a post office on one side of the envelope is how much the stamp cost on the other side. It's, it's, it's uh, stamped either express or not express. They want, they, they basically want to find people who are not paying enough and yet for express, but stamping it that way. So even there, uh, they're very people are much better at that, right? And indeed, and this is an idea due to Lita Cosmides mm-hmm. that the uh, we're we're very good at sniffing out cheaters, and the uh, rule for sniffing out a cheater is the the law of contraposition, namely that um, a if you take a benefit or a privilege, you have to meet a requirement or pay a cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, a rule like that, we know how to test because it's equivalent to detecting cheaters. And we couldn't have evolved to be social unless we were sensitive to um, uh, exploiters, cheaters, uh, and, and so on. So we are, the, the cheater detection needs to have logic baked in. And there's a kind of ecological rationality, as Lita uh, puts it, that uh, when it comes to problems that are uh, embedded in social life, and mm-hmm. she argues indeed embedded in our evolutionary history, right. then uh, then we can be perfectly logical. Right. She thinks, uh, last time I checked, at least she thought we had kind of a cheater detection module in the brain, or at least some special functionality uh, for catching people or trying to put one over on you or, or break the rules or something. Um, in any event, uh, now... So that's a case. I, I agree with you. I wouldn't have called that uh, confirmation bias. I would have uh, just said we're designed to, to to kind of see this in one context, but not to to apprehend it abstractly. So we don't see it in other contexts. Now, there are cases where we seem to be engineered by natural selection 
to uh, to not see things clearly, to even believe uh, things that aren't true. Confirmation bias is an example of uh, what probably you and I believe is a biological adaptation. Um, and and it seems to me that's where things get interesting and problematic is where you you look at cases where where the brain is in a certain sense designed to mislead you, perhaps in the service of misleading others to your advantage, right? So that you can argue effectively. So, you know, uh, there's a term that's that's popular now called motivated reasoning. Now, I, you know, I wrote uh, my book, The Moral Animal, in uh, which I'm sorry to say was published 27 years ago. Uh, I wrote a lot about motivated reasoning in that, what is now called motivated reasoning. And I said, the, you know, the brain is, the mind is like a lawyer. It just it wants to win, uh, you know, not necessarily gives the truth. Um, but I didn't use the term. What what to you is implied by the term motivated reasoning and how much does it encompass? It encompasses confirmation bias, right? Um, it overlaps strongly with it. I don't think it has to. Um, I suppose if, you, if, if, if confirming a belief is a motive, then mm-hmm. I suppose you could call it motivated okay. reasoning. But yeah, it is. And motivated reasoning is a, a family of fallacies that are, um, <clears throat> I think, have been known for, for quite some time. I think the term, I think, goes back to the 70s. Does it? Uh, so it is, yeah, it isn't that new a term. So was it, but, was uh, it not in an evolutionary context then? That's right. It was in, in the context of social psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And, uh, and it, it comes in a, a number of forms, one of which, which is uh, highly relevant today, is the my side bias, where what you are trying to, what you are motivated to confirm is not just your particular belief, but one of the sacred values of, of your, uh, your coalition, your tribe, your sect, your political party. So you may be, might be motivated to say something that is uh, widely believed in, and, and valued in your social circle, that being one of the motives that we have for, uh, for, for confirming our beliefs. Okay. Um, and there are a number of other things that are, that are uh, I, it seems to me you can slice and dice these in a number of ways. I mean, as you said, you can kind of say, yeah, confirmation bias is a form of uh, motivated reasoning. I would have said so. Uh, but uh, but there there are a number of other things aside from from confirmation bias that uh, overlap. Yeah, I guess the the the, the difference say, between the uh, example that we use to introduce confirmation bias, the, that card selection task, is in that case it's not as if you really really want it to be true that if there's a P there's a D, right. and you, you, know, you right. don't care one way or another. Right. But if it's something like a conclusion of uh, you know how how much do I deserve to be paid? Uh, where should we live? What movie should we see? What are the what are the arguments? People do tend to come up with more arguments that support what they want to be accepted in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think there's the, that famous quote from Upton Sinclair: "It's very hard to get a man to understand something when his livelihood depends on not understanding it." Mm-hmm. And you see this in a political context on social media. You know, uh, people. You know, you see something that is one of your tribe's talking points. You're more inclined to retweet it without examining it. Uh, whereas if it's a, a point that comes from the other side, you're more likely to scrutinize it uh, carefully. And, uh, and you know, there, is, there are examples in, in, in your book of cases where people turn out to be almost surprisingly good logicians when they have exactly that kind of motivation, like, like they're looking for evidence about gun control or something. 
And, uh, you know, if there are grounds for being suspicious, uh, if, if they have a partisan attachment to the alternative view, they scrutinize the evidence very carefully and sometimes uh, more rigorously than they would have uh, otherwise. Exactly. So we can, that's exactly right. We can be uh, surprisingly logical when it comes to the uh, picking flaws in the other guy's argument. Picking flaws in our argument, you know, not, not so much. And of course, that's an argument for forums, arenas of uh, debate and discussion, free speech. So if you do have everyone trying to poke holes in everyone else's idea, then the idea that survives has some likelihood of being true. That's why we have democracy. That's why we have freedom of the press. That's why we have academic freedom, freedom of speech, and, and all the rest. It's basically uh, uh, capitalizing on that feature of our uh, our, our, our cognition, our reasoning. Because if, 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 if we were just as irrational at noting flaws in other people's arguments, well, you throw a bunch of irrational people together and you just get more irrationality. But if you have the capacity to evaluate arguments, even if they're other people's arguments, you put people together, and at least with the right rules, that offers you some hope of spotting the, uh, the good ideas. Mm -hmm. And when you refer to my side bias, which I guess is, is that your term? My side bias? It is not. It is not. It is not. There's a book by Keith Stanovich that came up pretty recently called The Bias That Divides Us. I don't know if he originated the term, but he wrote a whole book about it. Well, I mean, I'm kind of wondering to what extent, how different is that from my bias? In other words, if I were having an argument with one person over how much money I deserved or something, uh, is there much difference in, in the kind of... Uh, the, the parts of my cognition that would be engaged and perhaps enlisted in distorting things, then there would be if 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 I were on an ideological team and we were arguing about where government resources um, should go. I mean, in a, I, I don't want to get into a, an argument about individual selection versus group selection. It's not it's not unrelated to that question, maybe. But but the main I guess my main question is, are 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 our so-called so tribal biases often kind of individual biases aggregated, or, or do you see them as these kind of distinct things in many cases? So I think the underlying mechanism is probably the same, but you just add in the fact that we don't just want to be right, which you know, most of us do, but we want our side to be right, our, our team. And the extra dynamic, and this, this is, um, comes from being a social animal, is that we all crave acceptance from the, uh, our, our clique, our peer group, mm -hmm. and uh, we dread ostracism and shaming. And there are certain opinions that will have you drummed out of your social group. And, and there's a, a narrow perverted sense in which is highly rational to uh, advance false beliefs if they're the false beliefs that uh, all the people you respect uh, hang on to. Mm -hmm. um, and you see, you see something like this on social media where, you know, the, the way to elevate your status within your own tribe is to uh, basically exacerbate antagonism between the tribes or at least belittle the other tribe. And, and this sometimes involves a kind of confirmation bias in the sense that one very effective thing to do if you want to elevate your tribal status is just find the craziest person on the other side, the person who threw the most violent fit over a wearing a mask in a supermarket or something and kind of right. act as if that's a typical Trump supporter or something or do it from the the same thing from uh, from the other side. But that that is kind of well, you could you could you could 
ask how cynical the person is being, how conscious they are that that the other person is not typical. But and so, in other words, whether that is confirmation bias or they're just cynically magnifying an example they know is not typical. But certainly as that example spreads through social media. It is doing so, would, would you say, partly on the power of confirmation bias? In other words, people saying, yeah, that is typical. That's what the tribe is like. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, earlier you mentioned in our conversation the notion of self-deception, uh, owing to Robert Trivers, the evolutionary biologist. And uh, what that tells us is that it isn't necessarily cynical. It could be heartfelt. Yeah. That is, the, the beliefs that you're, that that uh, serve your interests, you might um, spread them all the more effectively if it looks like you believe them. And it's much more likely to look like you believe them if you do believe them, mm -hmm. even if uh, other than the motive to, to uh, persuade other people, you might have no good grounds for believing it. Okay, so uh, this, this, this kind of leads to uh, one of the chapters that would have been in the book I didn't write. Um, but, but uh, you know, if I were to list uh, cognitive biases uh, that are a big part of the problem today. Um, I think one I would mention is attribution error, which I don't think you you get into. Let me, let me just quickly see if my understanding of it is is the same as yours. Originally, uh, the idea was what the, the way it was phrased was or formulated was when we try to explain the behavior of people, we put too much emphasis on their disposition, the kind of people they are, their natural inclinations, and not enough on the circumstance, the situation. So you see somebody who's rude to a checkout clerk, you say that guy's a jerk. For all you know, they just found out they have a terminal disease or that a relative died or something. Uh, and that, that was the original uh, formulation. I think it's gotten more interesting and more powerful and important as we've started to see evidence that uh, actually it's, it, it's, more, it's more subtle. It, when it's a an enemy or a rival of yours, and they do something bad, then you're particularly inclined to attribute it to their disposition, their character. They're just bad people. If they do something good, you're inclined to kind of explain it away via situation. You know, they were just trying to impress this person or something. Uh, if it's a friend or ally, it's the opposite. They do something good. You say, sure, that's the kind of person they are. Do something or if it's bad. yourself, yeah. What's that? Or if it's yourself. Or if it's yourself. Or if it's somebody yeah. in your family. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, classic, it's like you see your daughter be mean to somebody on playground. Oh, she didn't get her nap. Some kid is mean to her. Oh, that's a mean kid. Uh, and, and so, you know, one, one that you do, you do have a whole chapter on, on game theories, you know, as you mentioned, game theory is important to me. I now have a, a newsletter I put out called the non-zero newsletter that looks at some of this psychology sometimes. My own view is you are you're always better off, whether it's a non-zero-sum game or a zero-sum game, in understanding the other person's uh, frame of mind, uh, which things in their environment are influencing them. Are they constrained in what they can do? Is a politician constrained in what they can offer in a negotiation, whatever? Um, and I mean, I think that's an advantage to you, even in a zero-sum game. I think in the case of the classic non-zero-sum game, where there can be a win-win outcome, it, it, it would just be better for the world generally if people had clearer understandings of the constraints they're operating under. So, and, and I think, you know, in, in the current political kind of tribal context, um, you know, if, if Democrats who want to win the next election say, yeah, well, all Trump supporters are racist, they're just bad people, I would submit that's not going to be as conducive to recalibrating their political strategy as it would be to say, well, 
let's look at, you know, what is their economic status? What do they blame that on? And, and, and on and on, looking at situational variables. So I think it's a, I, I think attribution error is a huge thing. Does I, I completely agree. And, and it is a, a, a gap in the book. If I wanted to make it longer, that's probably a good candidate for inclusion. And, and it does, you're right, it manifests itself all, all over the place. A lot of us encounter it when we take on a new role and we find ourselves saying the same dorky things that the people in that, that we were disgusted at other people in that role saying until we, we ourselves do it. I remember when I, first time I, I got a job as a teacher teaching a bunch of kids. And, you know, like kids, I always rolled my eyes at the stupid things the teacher said, like, well, young man, do you mind sharing with the class what you find so funny? And here I was at the age of 18 in front of a bunch of uh, unruly 11-year-olds. And I, was, I said, well, young man, do you mind telling the rest of the class what you find so funny? And I thought, oh, my God, I've turned into a teacher. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and that happens. And when you're a parent, and another, another way in which I think it distorts our public discourse is the, the almost universal belief that um, politicians are slimy and weaselly and liars and uh, they, they, they sidestep, they don't tell the truth, they're evasive. Well, yeah, they are. And probably you would be too, because you have no choice when you're in that situation. When anything that you say is going to offend an organized constituency, you in a democracy, have to assemble a coalition, uh, muster a minority of them, a majority of them. Most of the specific things you say will enrage someone, and so you talk in generalities. Yeah. Now, it's not that 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 is a, a character flaw of the people who happen to go into politics. If you want to survive in politics, that's what you got to do. And uh, so, it, I think it leads to some cynicism about our public servants, which might be—I don't want to say cured, but at least mitigated—if we understood that there are demands of a position that any rational person would would have to satisfy mm -hmm. and we would perhaps be a little more tolerant of the, the the government officials that that we really do depend on yeah it's funny um i was just feeling guilty about doing a rant on one of my podcasts about how horrible politicians are and then reflecting on it i realized that you know they're like the rest of i mean how many people say things that are incompatible with their desire to like get a promotion or something, right? I mean, everyone is kind of like this. I guess the frustrating thing is that their career compels them to continue to profess nobler motives, right? It's like most of us don't have to go around doing that. that that's why the, that's what I guess winds up annoying me about it. But um, but I think you're absolutely right. Uh, so um, let me ask you a question about your yourself. I mean, you you face. Uh, I mean, social media can be a, 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 a tough place and it's and you see people kind of staying in line and 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 not deviating uh, from the tribe. Um, how do you handle that yourself? I mean, do you think you have a reasonably good record for, uh, you know, saying things with some degree of indifference to how they're received or what? No, I, I, I calibrate what I say on, on um, you know, Twitter and elsewhere in interviews uh, so that I don't, even though I have a reputation for being controversial, I don't embrace any old controversial position that I happen to have a, a feeling about. I try to not to distract the conversation with various, by poking various trolls or enraging mm -hmm. various factions. I don't know how good a job I do at it, but I, I choose my controversies carefully. When I, in my Twitter feed, for example, I virtually always, uh, my comments are 
with respect to some article that I am linking to. So there is a fuller explanation. You can, you know, I, you can follow the references. Uh, they're not. I try not to make off the cuff uh, comments. Mm-hmm. Try not to just be a snark machine, which a lot of, uh, which some Twitter feeds are. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily protect protect me because sometimes even when I do uh, link to an article which backs up what what I say, uh, it still enrages people. I was mm-hmm. the, the target of a. Uh, a, um, uh, a petition last year from a bunch of uh, linguistics graduate students to remove my name from a list of media experts in the Linguistic Society of America because people took exception to a handful of tweets, uh, even though each one of them was pointed to an article that was fully backed what, what up. What was the most egregious thing you said, do you remember, in the tweets? Yeah, I used the word urban crime, which, um, if you're a dog, is uh, a whistle that, that stands for African-American crime, apparently. Uh, that, that was one of them. The other one, as I said, that, uh, that the Santa Barbara rampage shooter who uh, six or seven years ago um, killed a number of, of, uh, uh, of uh, people in Goleta, mm-hmm. uh, that is not a indicator of increasing misogyny because mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, any... Uh, jerk with a gun, in his case, a knife, can uh, try to attain notoriety by killing a bunch of innocent people uh, in a hurry. Those um, uh, those cases are not harbingers of a trend. They are statistically a drop in the bucket. They uh, We should not credit them with the uh, honor of representing some, some trend. And this is just part of my one of my general hobby horses that that uh, a notorious event, a viral video, is not a trend. That's mm-hmm. an example of the availability bias, the fact that we do tend to base our understanding of prevalence, risk, probability, trends on ex- available examples from memory. Well, people had a fit uh, on that, even and, and saying, well, he, he uh, downplayed the, the deaths of, of uh, uh, eight women. Well, it turned out it actually wasn't eight women, that almost half of his victims were male, but you know, who's counting? So that brings up a, a a thing I think we're all prone to, which is um, when you get criticism, like if I get a bad book review, I immediately just scan it for misrepresentations of my book, some sign that this person is not qualified to review the book. That's not the way I look at the average book review, right? I just read the review. Um, and in general, when we're criticized, it's always tempting to attribute you know, intellectual dishonesty or various other things. As you said, you're controversial. You, you've taken a lot of heat from the left in particular. I'm wondering if, first of all, that kind of has surprised you. I mean, does it does it not seem to make sense? And then uh, or do you have a theory? And, and secondly, I assume for anybody, there would be a temptation to dismiss their critics as irrational. Well, given that you're the person who wrote this book, I think you you, you would be unusually good at, at coming up with explanations like that. What's your how do you yeah. how do you react to this stuff? Well, I'm not I'm not immune to that uh, tendency to uh, to scan a negative review for biases and errors of attribution and er- errors of logic, and I'm, you know I, I can find them. I certainly resist the temptation to reply to every negative review, uh, and 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 I do it with the meta awareness that probably some of that may be defensiveness, confirmation bias, self-serving bias, motivated reasoning. You know, I don't think so, but you know, I wouldn't, would I? <laughs> uh, so, so it's a, uh, 
it, it's uh, it was related to something that philosophers sometimes call the preface paradox. That is, you read the preface of a book, and it always ends with uh, "any errors are my responsibility." You feel like saying to the author, "Well, gee, if you know the book has errors, why don't you fix them?" <laughs> the answer is, "Well, I know it has errors. I don't know what they are. <laughs> I just know." At, at a meta level, I'm only human. All books have errors. So what, what makes me think that I won't have them? And it's the same, I think, in responding to criticisms. Yeah, much of my retorts and riposts and rejoinders and, and uh, error spotting probably is motivated, or some of it is, but doesn't seem so to me. And I don't know which ones, and I'm not the one to ask. Okay. So there's, I want to I want to mention the other thing, uh, the other chapter that uh, would have been in my book and see what you think about it. Uh, this is a little more offbeat maybe. And this is, and then this will actually lead into a little uh, quibble with one sentence of yours that I want to talk about. But I have noticed, I mean, again, I think it, it would be a net plus if more people understood the perspective of other people around the world. That That's cognitive empathy, not necessarily emotional empathy. I'm not talking about feeling their pain or even really caring about them, strictly speaking. I'm just talking about if you understand their perspective, it's probably going to be be easier to come up with, uh, you know, successful negotiation solution to, to non-zero sum problems whatsoever. It seems to me a big impediment to this is that if you start trying to explain the perspective of some person considered good, bad, and they may be considered bad with, with good reason, people immediately accuse you of defending them. So, so it's like yeah. if you say, I think it's important that we understand, like, uh, well, let's say Assad, like, he ain't given up, okay? Because if he's not the leader of Syria, he knows there's no escape in the modern world. He will be brought to justice somehow or so, something like that. If, if you say, well, that's not even a good example. Well, I mean, in the same way that, uh, that Gaddafi was brought to justice and uh, Saddam Hussein yeah. was brought to justice. Yes, in other right. words, he'll be hanging from a lamppost. Right. Or, and that may not be the best example, maybe, maybe, uh, no. but but you know what I mean. The, the oh, I know exactly. Oh, I know totally what you mean. That is so true. And I do. You're you're right that I don't write about it in rationality. I did write about it in the Better Angels of Our Nature. Okay. I even had the wisecrack. Just monitor your blood pressure, as I say. Well, try to see it from Hitler's point of view. Right. Now, uh, you know, the thing is, Hitler had a point of view, and if you were a good, you know, strategist in in World War II, or if you want to prevent there to be from there from being more Hitlers, mm -hmm. you really should see it from his point of view. It doesn't mean adopting it, mm -hmm. but I, I couldn't believe, agree more. And it is part of, uh, here I borrow somewhat from Roy Baumeister in his book, his excellent book, Evil, mm -hmm. that we do have a kind of model of dealing with evil that where it, there are three perspectives, each one of which means you try on an entire mindset. The mm -hmm. victim's perspective is that the victim is totally innocent, minding his own business, and the aggressor just uh, picked on him for uh, unprovoked for no good reason, just to just to see him suffer. That this is a heinous uh, harm and must never be forgotten. The uh, aggressor's uh, viewpoint is. Uh, this is what I did was the, the uh, uh, just desserts for a long series of affronts by mm -hmm. the victim and mm -hmm. the harm was minor and uh, we got to get over it. Let's let, let bygones be bygones. Let's move forward. Uh, and those are two very different mindsets. And the uh, a third mindset, a kind of analytic, uh, neutral scientist mindset often seems a little like the aggressor's mindset. Namely, there were excellent reasons for why the aggressor did what they did. Uh, and often, 
analysts, uh, non-moralistic historians, scientists, social scientists are condemned because it sounds like they're taking the, um, the aggressor's narrative that is trying to understand the reasons why they did what they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, some, there's some scholars who say it's immoral to try to explain the Holocaust. Uh, that that any explanation would lessen the um, yeah. uh, the 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 evil the enormity. Yeah, you know there was some actor I forget. Uh, I think it was Will Smith had to apologize for saying you know I think people they they're they're good at convincing themselves they're doing good. He said I I think even Hitler didn't wake up every morning saying I'm going to see how much evil I can do. He had to like. He had to like apologize. It was like a yeah to walk it back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but the thing is, he you know, but the thing is, as a psychologist, he was right, um, and he illustrated the fact that if you are too much of a psychologist, that is, you you try to understand wrongdoing, you can be confused with someone who's endorsing it. So mm-hmm. those are, those are great examples. And I do, I you're right that it is enough of a consequential flaw in reasoning that it could have found a home in rationality, but I did discuss it in Better Angels of Our Nature. So okay. I, I agree with you. It's a, it's, it is a big deal. So I said this would back into a quibble with one sentence in your book. The quibble is you, you, uh, you use the word apologist. And in my ideal world, that would almost be banned because it is, I'm not saying you're using it this way here. I want to get into this example, but it is so often used to shut down debate in exactly that way. Oh, you're you're a, a Kim Jong Un apologist. You're a you're a Putin apologist, and so on. So, in my ideal world, we'd uh, remove it from the vocabulary. Now, as it happens, the the context where you use it actually leads to another interesting question. So, uh, you're 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 calling what aboutism? Uh, you know what what aboutism? Well, here's the example you give. Uh, it, it was a favorite of the apologists. There's your crime. The apologists of the Soviet Union in the 20th century who presented the following defense of its totalitarian repression, quote, what about the way the United States treats its Negroes? I agree that if they're treating, if they are deploying it as a literal defense, the reason I I bring this up, though, is that because I've for so long been tempted to write a piece called In Defense of What Aboutism, because you, uh, you often get this uh, in foreign affairs things. It's like, I find myself saying, well, you know, we do, it's true the Soviet Union does this, but we do this. I don't mean to defend what they do. It's usually in a context of like somebody's proposing sanctions or somebody's proposing some punishment. And I'm like, are we really in position to do this? So that's my defense of a certain kind of whataboutism, which in turn gets back to another, uh, a big theme in your book that I I also want to back into, but go ahead and respond to that if you want. Yeah. Well, I, let me let me see if I can, uh, if I'm understanding the, the what you're advocating, which, which I, I probably do agree with. Namely, if it's a question of rules, norms that are consistently followed, I think both of us are fans of the uh, you know, rules-based international order that's sometimes conflated with an American-led rules-based international you've, order. You've which noticed we that both, too. Oh yes, which is. Uh, you know, which is uh, you know, sh- sh- a shocking non sequitur given the uh, uh, American adherence to the, the international order. There you world go. Um, but, I'm, uh, I'm, so- I'm working on rehabilitating you on the left, and I think we've just made some progress, Steve. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm there. Uh, and, and, I, and I'm not an apologist for uh, American foreign policy by any means, especially since writing The Better Angels of Our Nature, which made me a huge fan of international organizations, international law, international norms. And yeah, the United States is one of the biggest floaters. But going back to 
whataboutism or whataboutery. Uh, let me see if I understand you. Are you saying that um, it is relevant uh, if one side has an infraction that they accuse the other of, uh, in that if we want to apply some neutral set of laws and norms, then uh, everyone's got to play by the rules. You can't just enforce them on the other guy and flout them yourself. So that, if that's it, then, then yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. And then it, it isn't, it isn't a fallacy. What about or isn't a fallacy? Right. It's a, uh, you know, it's, it's a reason to doubt your credibility. Yeah. As opposed to say Xi Jinping last summer when said, uh, are there atrocities being committed with the Uyghurs? And he you know, basically said, well, what about George Floyd? Right. Well, I, I have to admit that, I mean, you're right. That's exactly what I was saying. Uh, that, you know, when people are, uh, are are proposing some kind of negative sanction for behavior that we ourselves commit, I try to call it out. I suppose I also am mindful of our tendency to, um, to exaggerate the threat from certain nations, in my view. And, you know, I mean, you've seen this. There's a kind of a Monarchian dynamic that can kick in once. And I think that's kind of happening with China now. I mean, what's happening with the Uyghurs is uh, terrible. I personally think an example of what I'm uh, worried about is how casually some people are deploying the term genocide without maybe looking. Uh, I, I haven't seen you're on board there. I'm, I'm totally on board. I, yeah. I, I've actually I actually interviewed an expert on what exactly they're doing. And it would take a, from what we know, at least. And again, what they're doing is terrible by my lights. But from what we know, it would take a pretty broad definition of the word genocide um, to justify. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I think the I think the word is bandied around much too easily. And it's because that by some definitions, it is uh, destroying a people qua people, qua their identity. Uh, what makes them ethnically distinct, right. as opposed to gassing them in a uh, in, in a gas right. chamber or putting a bullet in the back of their head, and they're they're very different, and they're yeah. both bad, but they're very different degrees of badness. Yeah, I mean, I don't mind the term cultural genocide. Uh, that that seems to be distinguishing it from actual genocide, but this is um, this is different. This this is uh, yeah. The, no, I, I I agree with yeah, you. Yeah. The, the um. So anyway, I was going to say. I, I, I do have a tendency to commit whataboutism as an attempt to kind of uh, provide a corrective to what I think is an increasingly kind of Monarchian view of us with respect to some other country, whether it's Russia or China, or whatever, that I think may be dangerous. So I, I have to cop to that, too. I, I, I'd be willing to defend that. Uh, but um, but in any event, but 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 but. That gets back to so this idea that um, you know we shouldn't sanction them for doing things that we do gets back to a really fundamental uh, thing you talk about in the book that is seems to be responsible for a lot of uh, what's kind of amazing about the human species, which is the whole idea of having a moral code that develops with moral reasoning and so on. Which is that we uh, you know we seem to have whether it's a built-in intuition or what. People in all cultures seem to respect the idea that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Uh, in other words, they recognize that if they're going to claim that they deserve to be treated better than somebody else, they have to come up with a reason. They can't just say, I, it's because I'm me, right? Yeah. And that's an amazing and powerful feature. It is. And it is. Uh, it's an, it, it is. It, it speaks to the... <clears throat> 
uh, comment on rationality that it, it is uh, completely separate from morality. You can't get an ought from an is, uh, with sometimes the implication that morality is just a question of cultural norms, you know, like, like uh, uh, <clears throat> do, do, do the men wear skirts or do the women wear skirts and, uh, you know, or fashion, how high is the hemline, how low is the hemline. But there is something that intimately ties morality to logic, reason, rationality. And it's exactly that. It's the interchangeability of uh, actors. Mm -hmm. Namely, that uh, since there's nothing, no logical status to the word you know, me versus you, any, as soon as I care about how you treat me, and we all do because we're social animals, we're, uh, you know, except for maybe some galactic overlord who's the permanent ruler of the universe and doesn't care how other people uh, treat him and they don't exist. If you care at all and you say, well, here's what I want you to do. Well, you're kind of on the hook for saying, well, yeah, and I have to um, mm -hmm. treat you the same way. And that's, uh, I mean, with, with variations, it's the golden rule and it's the categorical imperative and it's the veil of ignorance and it's the viewpoint from eternity. And it's even, as I point out, the way we try to instill morality in our small children. We say, how would you like that if he did that to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and which isn't to say that powerful people don't use their power to, you know, prevail unfairly in moral arguments and all of that. But but it, there is this one thing we have that at least you have to go through the motions uh, of defending your position, which it wouldn't, is a pretty, is a pretty subtle, logical uh, obligation for, for an animal that was created by natural selection. Um, I wonder if it is uh, if it is kind of engineered into us. Uh, I don't know if you if you think it's an adaptation I, per se. I mean, it does it does permit us to reap the benefits from non zero sum games, right? It, yeah, it, ab it, absolutely. Yes, and that, I think that's a really profound point. It's one, of, and you drew that out brilliantly in non zero. That a lot of the morality, aside from being a a logical implication of the irrelevance of me and you, just as a practical matter, we're al almost always better off having a code of morality that prevents us from harming others simply because the harm that the uh, the cost to the victim is almost always greater than the benefit to the exploiter or the aggressor. And so if we, even though it is to the advantage of the aggressor or exploiter to pick on a victim, if you're agreeing to a rule that applies to everyone, as you, you, you really have to both to be logically consistent and because tables might turn, everyone's better off if everyone refrains from aggression. Mm -hmm. So you, do you think it's possible then that the intuition uh, that you have to kind of uh, you know, that what's good for the goose is good for the gander actually has a basis in the genes because of the non-zero-sum advantages that accrue to to being able to argue. with it. It's almost like a common currency. It's almost like I sometimes think like the whole idea of moral good, which seems to be an intuition people everywhere have, that there is such a thing as moral good. And, you know, philosophers can tell us it's not that easy to argue from square one that that's the case, but people have the intuition. And I think of that as almost... Um, a kind of a common currency that allows people to engage in the kinds of moral discussions that lead to the rules of the road that benefit multiple parties. Does any of this? Yeah, no, it, it does. The The challenge is that, you know, obviously there's, there is lots of exploitation. There's a lot of violence mm -hmm. in human history. And so whatever 
intuition that we have that what's sauce for the goose and sauce for the gander is applied selectively and hypocritically, perhaps drawn out when it, um, especially when it sort of serves our interests when mm-hmm. we've been, say, at the receiving end. Uh, it may be that it's applied most naturally within a pretty small circle of your, your village or your clan, and you need a lot of poking and prodding to stretch it. Right. Um, and indeed, and so... You know, there has been slavery in many societies. There's also been an abolition of slavery, which, and there tends to be an asymmetry in the direction of history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, you and I are both sympathetic to the, to to uh, their their existing directional historical processes. We may disagree over you know what they are or where they live or, or what they consist of, but just empirically, as you as you pointed out in Non-Zero, and, and it was one of the inspirations for, for Better Angels, there's some things that once they're abolished, they kind of stay abolished, mm-hmm. like human sacrifice, like slavery. Another example from John Mueller is laughing at the insane. It used to be to bring out the family for an afternoon of fun at the local insane asylum to laugh at the antics mm-hmm. uh, of the the, uh, the patients. And, you know, it's this is not a swaying pendulum of fashion. Once they're gone, they more or less stay gone. And so history does seem to have something of an arrow. What that would suggest, though, is that the, 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 the benefits of um, positive sum gains, such as mm-hmm. refraining from aggression, uh, can't be that innate, but they are things that are woven into the universe so that once we discover them, there's there's no mm-hmm. turning back. But we might have to discover some of them, or at least in the full yeah. uh, expansiveness. Well, I mean, the way I would put it is to say that I think, yes, part of our uh, biologically engineered equipment, engineered by natural selection, does harness non-zero-sum logic, and it's there by virtue of non-zero-sum dynamics, but, uh, and here we come to a lot of the cognitive biases we're talking about, you know, given the, you know, even if it is kind of innate to uh, engage in these kinds of arguments, um, and, uh, and, and that's good, even if there is certain equipment that's designed to harness non-zero-sum games, it's also naturally going to be the case that there are things built into us to get the better of other people when we can to get the best deal when we can, uh, because, you know, within non-zero-sum games, there's often a zero-sum kind of bargaining dynamic and so on. And I think that's when you come to things like confirmation bias. It's like, okay, I've got to argue my case uh, and it's in your interest. Um, Even if the case is going to be argued in the way we're talking about with this kind of rational, moral superstructure, it's still in your interest to bias the case in your favor during the argument. I think both of those things can be the case. We can have, you know, does that? Yeah, no, I, that, that does make sense. And I think a lot of the you know, a lot of the features of inherent logical reality that natural selection adapted us to, it may have been that the, the adaptation that is genetically implanted in us uh, is uh, is um, baked together with certain kinds of content, context, subject matter mm-hmm. that we can understand the logic of interchangeability of perspectives within, say, a village, within a, a close social circle, but that it does take more cognitive effort to generalize it, right. to make it about P's and Q's. Just as the we're good at detecting cheaters, which is a if P then Q, it requires more work to turn that into not just taking a benefit and, and paying a cost, but any P and any Q to, to substitute variables for the constants. And, and we, we kind of see that happening back in the moral realm. So when we try to get people to treat 
you know, all of humanity as worthy of moral consideration. And then we use metaphors like the family of man or brotherhood, mm-hmm. where we take the intuitions that might have originated in familial feelings, and we try to stretch, you know, what, what do you mean by family? Well, you know, all the whole species is my family. And that, that's maybe one of the processes by which something that is implanted mm-hmm. in us by natural selection can be generalized and ultimately universalized. Yeah. I mean, it's still challenging. You're always going to think there's somebody in this giant family uh, who should be punished. And, and the, you know, I think you have to uh, ask yourself hard questions about whether your logic is solid there because we are so prone to, um, uh, you know, the biases, the kind you described in the book. I want to say one, one quick footnote on the, on the China genocide thing. I, I'm not saying that everyone uh, alleging genocide is actually talking about cultural genocide, like the destruction of mosques, which does seem to be happening or have happened is terrible. And I would call cultural genocide. There are other uh, there are other things that are going on that they're calling genocide. Uh, I would just say, if anybody's curious about this, I did a conversation with a guy named David Brophy, B-R-O-P-H-Y, that's on YouTube. And he he knows a lot about this stuff. And I came away from it thinking, uh, you know, we should maybe be careful in the language we use. Uh, not not that I approve of even what he, what he was describing, but... Uh, I, I completely agree. And there is a phenomenon of atrocity in, in language inflation, mm-hmm. where to cast opprobrium on something that we disapprove of, we use the uh, uh, words uh, applying to the most heinous extension or example to kind of borrow some of that opprobrium and apply it to the case we care about right now. So things that, you know, the rape of the environment and cultural genocide, yeah. uh, and I mean, that's a linguistic uh, uh, trick that mm-hmm. we all sometimes use. Yeah. No, and I think uh, in current American politics, part of the disagreement is between <laughs> language means different things to different generations. I mean, uh, racism to older people doesn't mean what it means to younger people. And, uh, because the younger people apply it more broadly and so on. And so I think that's, uh, so I, I think, um, we've been doing this an hour. I think you've got to, yeah. uh, go, but why don't you go ahead and say, you know, there's a lot of your book. Uh, I didn't uh, cover, I, I found this stuff on, you know, Bayesianism is, is such a, uh, a commonly used term now. I found that I, I have a clear understanding now of the Bayesian thing, which is so popular among the rationalist community and so on. There's a lot, you know, your expert, your explanations for all this stuff are clear and it does, does kind of cover the waterfront. Um, anything else you want to say about the book? Uh, yeah, just that there are a couple of things that we didn't talk as much about, but that are in there as I had to rise to the challenge of explaining why there seems to be so much uh, irrationality, especially recently. It may not be that recent. It may be of constant vulnerability, like conspiracy theories and paranormal woo-woo and medical quackery and, and fake news. What's the deal with that? And then I do try to make the argument, and we have touched on it a little bit, that a lot of great moral movements, movements towards social justice, were propelled, maybe even originated with a rational argument. So mm-hmm. there's no far from there being a contrast between rationality and social justice, rationality kind of defines what's just about social social justice and has been responsible, um, I suggest, for some of the great moral movements in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is uh, there is a whole lot there uh, that we didn't have time to get to. Uh, maybe maybe next time. Uh, but again, name of, the, back. name of the book is Rationality. Uh, which pretty well sums up what it's about. So, uh, so thanks a lot, Steve. 
My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Bob. Always a great, uh, great fun, great intellectual workout. Thanks for the conversation. <laughs> I'm, I'm flattered. Thanks.